what do you want for your funeral? I know that it's a strange question. It's one that we would rather like to avoid if possible. But have you ever thought about what your funeral might look like? Have you thought about what hymns your family should sing? Perhaps, How Great Thou Art. Have you thought about what scripture you would pick, the one that's meant the most to you in your life, the one that you want to have someone like me preach about? Do you want there to be a time of testimony? Every time I meet with a family to plan a service of death and resurrection, I completely avoid mentioning a time of testimony. I avoid it for a number of reasons, including the fact that testimonies are supposed to be about how God has worked in the life of the person And that almost never happens. You never know what someone might say when they are invited to speak freely from the pulpit. Like one time, a gentleman came up to me with a stack of papers and he said, I don't feel like I'm up to it. Can you read this from the pulpit? And I said, absolutely not. And he pleaded and pleaded. And so I read it under the bell tower right before the worship service for this funeral service. And I quickly had to omit a lot of things in it because he was confessing his love for the person now dead. And sometimes, you don't know whether anyone will get up to say anything at all. And to be clear, a lack of testimonial witness on behalf of the dead is not an indication that person lived a flawed or inconsequential life. No, it usually has more to do with the fact that many of us are uncomfortable with public speaking. But every once in a while, a family insists on having a time of testimony even when I didn't bring it up. And every time we have a service, it comes time for the testimony, I invite anyone who would like to speak to come up here to the pulpit. I sit down on the pew we have back here and I pray that God will tap on at least one person to say at least one thing. But I'm always prepared to come up here and make something up on the spot should the pulpit remain uncomfortably empty. If I were bolder, if I had more faith, I would just say, can I get a witness? And then I would sit down in comfort knowing that God always provides. In Psalm 66, the faithfulness of God is remembered. Offerings on behalf of God's people are made. And then one lone worshiper offers a witness to all who will listen. Bless the Lord your God. Let the sound of His praise be heard in this place and in all places. Our God has kept us among the living. What a great God is ours who has tested us, laid burdens on our backs, let people ride over our heads, and delivered us through fire and water. We remember, O people, how God journeyed with the people through the valleys of the shadow of death and brought them into the promised land. We remember, O people, How God has been with us in the midst of suffering and carried us through to the other side. And because of what the Lord has done, we will come into this, His house, with our offerings. We will present our money and our gifts and our time. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what God has done for me. Throughout the psalm, the writer describes in great detail the types of offerings that are made to the Lord, all of the animals that will be sacrificed. But it's also about far more than that. God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, God's faithfulness to us, is the lens by which we understand our own lives. God has listened to the prayers of the psalmist. God has listened to us. And because God listens, we must testify. 
Can I get a witness? You're supposed to say something like amen or praise or yeah or anything. Can I get a witness? Yeah, see, we don't like this stuff. It's taboo. It makes us uncomfortable. There was a time, however, when church and worship was all about testimony. Moments when preachers like me would step away from the pulpit and let the people of God proclaim the glorious works of God to the rest of the people of God. But today, we don't have time for all this witnessing stuff. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. We don't want to go knock on the dorm room doors and say, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior or burn in an everlasting hell. We don't want to evangelize anyone. Professional Christians like pastors are the ones who are supposed to testify and to witness. Or we might say that we don't want to talk about our faith because it's a private thing, which is ridiculous since we cannot understand and interpret our faith unless we're part of a thing called a faith community. Over and over and over again, Scripture bombards us with the call to testify, to witness, to tell our story, because that's exactly what the Bible is. The Bible is the witness to the marvelous works of God with God's people. The psalmist witnesses to the truth of God's reign because the psalmist has experienced it and cannot be kept from proclaiming it out loud. The psalmist has been transformed by God, and the only way to respond to that transformation is to tell the story, to tell it over and over again to anyone with ears to hear. Can I get a witness? When we are lost and found by God, That's a good place to start with our witness. For it is when we are lost that we are most open to the possibility of being found. And here's the thing. Testimony, witnessing to God, is not limited to speech about what God has done. Testimony is speech shaped by what God has done. The psalmist witnessed to the works of the Lord and in so doing allowed others, people like you and me, to hear and experience what the psalmist did. But today... Our modern lives will have none of it. We don't care much for the idea of witnessing anymore. It no longer matches up with our modern sensibilities. But telling our story is the means by which we come to understand our own faith. When we do it, when we are brave and bold enough to witness, we don't simply tell what we have already come to believe. It becomes the means by which we believe. As we tell our story, as we look back on what God has done, it informs how we believe and behave even today. And that is why we witness. Because as we witness, as we share our story, we become who God has called us to be. So it's about to get right uncomfortable in this place. Because I want to know if I can get a witness. I want to know who among us is bold enough to proclaim not your whole faith journey, not what has brought you from when you were 12 and you knelt at the altar to this very day, but what is something, just one thing that God has done for you? The pulpit is yours. And I'm going to wait as long as it takes for the Holy Spirit to speak. What has God done for you?
All right, Dad. <laughs> yeah, this is not comfortable. <laughs> um, I just, you know, gotta praise the Lord. The rocks will cry out. So, <laughs> um, why it's my miracle baby, and uh, he just graduated from high school. And, uh, Amen. Good stuff. Um, you know, 18 years ago, Jerry and I brought uh, Seth to the um, doctor for our routine ultrasound of our, our baby-to-be, and um, it was not good news. He um, took way too long, and uh, I'm a nurse, and I could see that something was um, terribly not right, and, um, and uh, pretty soon they were bringing other people into the room and looking at things, and Wyatt had this rare... Um, occurrence where a mass was growing in his chest and uh, we proceeded to go through the pregnancy um, with a lot of tears and a lot of fear and a lot of prayer. I wish I could say that they were my prayers that healed him but I, I just was scared and I had nothing to do but um, cry and cry out to God to just somehow heal my baby. Um, we had cardiologists sitting in our ultrasounds that we'd go for every couple weeks to see if they had to emergently um, do surgery. Um, Heart-lung bypass, we put in for at UVA, and, um, and it was just a very scary time. Um, two weeks before my delivery date, we went for an ultrasound and the mass was gone. Hmm. Um, the blood supply just spontaneously constricted to this mass that had been causing this mediastinal shift and pressing on his heart, and, it, and it, was, it was just gone. And They let me deliver naturally, but everybody was there because they didn't know if he'd be able to breathe and if his lungs had matured because it had been sitting there. And, and of course, you know, it just was healed perfectly. And he was fine, and, and it was great, and it was a glorious time. Um, we went home, and people that I didn't even know came to our door just proclaiming how God had answered prayer. There were children in Sunday schools that we didn't even go to church at praying and, and just rejoicing with us. So it was a beautiful time and, um, and just a testimony. And um, I'm just thankful that that's our story and that God used it for his good, like he always does. and get through it. March 28, 2012 was the worst day of my life. It was a great tragedy for my family. For two years after that, I went into a spiral of deep depression. <clears throat> Suicidal thoughts and a nervous breakdown. 
on November the 14th, 2014, in the wee hours of the morning. I'm not sure if I woke up or if I was between the, the sleep and the waking up. And God spoke to my heart. He told me that the tragedy that we had experienced was not of his doing, but he was there to accept my son when he was taken from us that I should not worry, that he was in good hands, and that I should go on with my life and rejoice that we had had 20 years and one month with him. I praise God every day for those 20 years and one month that I had with my son and for bringing me back to his grace, where I rejoice every day in God's love. On the most general level, God has always given me what I needed, not necessarily what I asked for. But on a different level, it's easy for me to point to Jim, to point to all the people that have been placed in my life. And I am convinced that it's nothing less than a miracle. My parents, were saved from alcoholism and I got them back. They loved me unconditionally. My first husband, who was a beautiful person, and thanks to him, I have Sally. Throughout my life, including countless people sitting in these pews, God has put people that I needed when I needed them. And as a result, I'm not afraid of anything. shared with you on a number of occasions the ways and means by which God called me to do what I'm doing with my life. Uh, you've heard about the sidewalk square that I prayed on on Fort Hunt Road in Alexandria, Virginia when I was 15 years old and knew that I couldn't do anything with my life afterward. You've been brought on the narrative of me being invited and marched to the front of the church to preach for my home church when I was a teenager, unsure of anything uh, that I was doing. But I want to testify to another marvelous moment in my life. God sending me here to you. I never, ever would have picked St. John's United Methodist Church in Stanton, Virginia. 
I say that not because I knew anything about you that made me not want to pick this place. I just literally knew nothing about this place. When I walked into this sanctuary almost four years ago for the first time on a Sunday morning, I knew probably five of you, and I couldn't even remember your names. And yet God called me to be the pastor of this place. And one of the things that we don't talk about, one of the things I haven't talked about, is that when we first got here, when Lindsay and I moved here, it was really, really hard. We were a young couple plucked out of our community in Durham, North Carolina. Lindsay couldn't find a job. I didn't know what it meant to do this job. We didn't make any friends for a long time. And whether or not either of us would ever admit it, I wondered, I wondered if God had sent me to the right place. And I got up in this pulpit every week. I proclaimed what God had placed in my heart. I prepared for Bible study. I visited people in the hospital, sat on the floor with our preschoolers and told them about Jesus. And slowly, you grafted us in to this church. As the weeks and the months passed by, we felt more and more connected to the people in the pews who were here this very morning. We loved you and you loved us. And suddenly this church family became our family. We wept when you wept. We danced when you danced. We rejoiced when you rejoiced. God sent me here to you. And some might say that God sent me here for a reason, that this church needed me. And you know what? That might be true. All churches need pastors for different reasons. But for as much as this church needed me, I needed this church. I know in my heart of hearts that God sent me here to rekindle my faith. Because after spending years reading about God in seminary, it was far too easy to be cynical about what the church could be. And coming here, I needed to rediscover the wonderful power of God made manifest in a community of love that you can never, ever read about in a book on theology. I needed to re-encounter the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And you, my friends, provided that for me. And I know, I know deep in my soul that the time has come for me to go to a new place. But when I got the phone call about moving, when the bishop told me it was time to go to a new place, I had no idea who the new pastor of St. John's was going to be. They hadn't even talked about it yet. And to be honest, I was terrified. I love this church because this church has loved me, and I wanted to have a pastor that will love it and receive love from it like I have. And as I said earlier, today is the day we can announce who the new, the new pastor of St. John's is going to be, and his name is Reverend Chuck Cole. I put together a picture of him and his family in a little bio that you're all going to receive on your way out of worship. And when I found out that Chuck was coming here, that he was going to be the new pastor, I really felt and believed that God had answered my prayers. Because Chuck and I, we were ordained together last June. We've interacted a lot together before either of us found out he was coming here. Chuck and his wife Sarah have four kids, and they currently live in Covington, where Chuck is serving two churches. He is full of love for God's church. And I know that he will love this place that he will love you, and I know that you will love him. So what has God done for me? 
God sent me to a church that listened to me, prayed with me, and loved me in spite of myself. What has God done for me? God is sending me to a new place and is sending a new pastor to this church that I love to continue the good work of the kingdom. What has God done for you? I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Would you all please join me in prayer? Almighty God, this morning we pray for Chuck and for Sarah and for their four children, for his churches that are finding out that they are leaving. We pray for this church, O Lord, for St. John's, that it might receive with love this new pastoral family the way that I was received, the way that Lindsay was received, the way that Elijah was received. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us spirits of truth and of hope and of mercy and grace, that we might witness to what you have done for us, that we might share our story. For, O Lord, it is in sharing our story that we come to know what we believe. And we believe, O God, that in sharing our story we might help others come to believe that which we believe. And all God's people say, Amen. I'm going to keep saying this over and over again, but you all are one of the greatest gifts I've ever received in my life. You truly, truly are. You came into my life when I needed it most. So thank you. You have been a gift.